Last week we finished Romans chapter 8, and that was just a blast. It was so much fun to, to hit that chapter. Now I'd like to go backwards, a few chapters, and I want to go to chapter 5, and I want to, if the Lord gives me the capacity to do this, I'd like to look at chapter 5 this morning with you for the first 10 verses. And last week we spoke on separation anxiety, but we spoke more, not about that, but more about nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so when we look at chapter 8, for us to understand chapter 8 and chapters 6 and 7 of Romans, we really need to look at chapter 4 and chapter 5, because chapter 5 it's such a rich chapter. I was driving this week in my car, and you know how you're in your car and your mind is just kind of going and you're thinking different things. And Holy Spirit just prompted me the words of this old hymn. And it's a hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And these words came to my mind. I want to read them to you just before we begin. Oh, the bliss. And think of this. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. This hymn was written after a traumatic event, or a series of traumatic events, in a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. Um... His first son had died at the age of two in the great Chicago fire of 1871, which ruined him financially because he, had success, he was a successful lawyer and had invested significantly in the property in the area of Chicago that was devastated by the great Chicago fire. His business interests were further hit by the economic downturn in 1873, at which time he had planned to travel to Europe with his family just for a getaway. He said, I just need to get away from all this. And so he made a reservation on the SS Ville du Havre. And in a late change of plan, he sent the family ahead while he was delayed doing some business concerning zoning problems in the great city of Chicago because of the fire. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship sank rapidly after a collision with a sea vessel, the Loch Farn or Loch Urn, and all four of Spafford's daughters died. His wife Anna survived and sent him the now famous telegram, Saved Alone. Shortly afterwards, as Spafford traveled to meet his grieving wife, he was inspired to write these words as the ship passed near where his daughters had died. Now, why would, uh, I was thinking these words, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. I'm thinking, who wrote that? This is a man who is grieving because of the loss of his four daughters. He is struggling with anxiety. He is definitely struggling with guilt. He is definitely struggling with, with regret. Why did I send my kids? Why was I not there myself? And he's thinking all of these thoughts. And as he's going there, and he's just, this is the, the, the long road of just discouragement, dramatic sadness. And here he is in this ship on his way. And he's passing over this location where his, his family perished, his daughters perished. 
And he pens these words. Why does he pen these, why does he pen these words? Why is he saying this? And it dawns on me this. And get this. That if we do not understand that we have peace with God, then everything in our life makes no sense. The details of our life don't make sense. The tragedies in our life don't make sense. The decisions that we made that we are now suffering the consequences in our life don't make sense. We take the pieces and we try to make sense out of it all. And we can't make sense out of all the pieces of our life when we don't understand that this glorious thought, my sin or your sin, not in part, praise the Lord, (laughs) but in whole, was nailed to the cross. And we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. And I think we could just jump right up and start singing again. But isn't that beautiful? Because when we understand that we have peace with God, we can look back at our life and we can make sense out of all the brokenness, all the sadness, all the tears and all the pain. Romans 4 verse 25 sets the stage for chapter 5 for the first 10 verses. I want to read verse uh, chapter 4 verse 25 and it says this who was delivered and we are talking we know that this is Paul's talking about Jesus Christ he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification Wes is going to get that up on the screen in a minute he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification what does this mean well when we talk about the resurrection I think we often forget that the resurrection was the most talked about event in the early church Christmas was not really ever talked about there was no Christmas in the first 100 years of the early church but Easter or the day of resurrection was the center it was the foundation it was the fundamental groundwork for this new faith the resurrection of Jesus Christ and I don't think that we talk about it enough in the Christian church the resurrection he was raised for our justification God's entire redemptive plan is summarized in chapter 4, verse 25, that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We have to understand that there are, I'm going to do a little teaching and then some practical application. We need to understand that there are three aspects to our salvation. Number one, the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, where our trespasses, what's that word trespasses, by the way? I never want to assume that we all speak King James English. But trespasses really is a long word that I still don't know how to spell correctly. That just means wrong. All of my wrongs. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. Okay, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Okay, that word we use, wrongness. He's wrong. I was right. He was wrong. The cross, we're pay- the cross paid for all of our wrongs. Whenever you were wrong. Whenever you were wrong this week. Whenever you were wrong today. That was paid for and then forgiven. That's only one third. The second part is awesome, and that is buried. They were buried. Your sins were buried in the deepest sea that no one could ever. And there are parts of the deepest sea that we've heard about near Japan that still cannot be explored because they are so deep. And that's where sins are. I don't know if they're exactly there, but it cannot be found out. Your sins are buried. You know what that means today? All of your wrongs have been separated from you. Okay, isn't that great? It's your identity is no longer you're wrong. You ever grow up and you just hated to be wrong? You had to be right. Well, all of our wrongs were paid for and we were separated. The, the Hebrew word in the Old 
Testament for the word forgiven is a very powerful word. And one of the meanings is, is that it's no longer your property, meaning that if you take the time to go and explore it, you are breaking a law. You are doing something illegal in the God's economy of grace. When we start to think about and identify with our sins, we are breaking the law. We are living in something that is no longer our right to do. You got it? For example, how many have ever had something that you owned and then you sold and then you saw somebody else with it? Bike, car, house, anything? And you see somebody riding with that or having that and you're thinking, that's my bike. That's my house. Remember one time we went to a house and I don't know if you guys do this, but sometimes you drive by your old house where you grew up and you just want to walk on the lawn and look around and the new, the, the owners there don't know who you are and they're looking at you like, Hey, honey, who is that weirdo out there like poking around our house? That's illegal. We're trespassing, aren't we? So the new word for trespass for us is, is that we start to meddle in memories and we begin to live in the consequences and the identification of who I used to be. Yeah. That makes sense? That's sin. <laughs> okay. We're going to talk about sin. That's sin. And the third thing is this, is that resurrection we have become justified. Justified is not the name of a Netflix film, but it is, it justified means I am now right. Yeah. I'm right. I'm righteous, or that's the big word in King James um, terminology. I am right. I am right. I wake up in the morning. I'm right. Do you ever win a major argument and you're like, okay, I'm right. Everybody knows I'm right. Everybody on Facebook knows I'm right. The whole world knows I'm right. I'm right. Or you win a big, you know, a big court case and you walk out and you're like, I'm right. I'm right. And isn't that a great feeling? I'm right. Well, we are right. We are right because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those are three simple illustrations. Paul here in chapter 4, I want to zip through chapter 4 really quick with you. So if you're writing notes, you can write these things down. But Paul uses three examples in chapter 4 about who? Abraham, right? Abraham. Met a guy this past week. His name is Abe, and he's a Jewish a Jewish businessman from New York City, and I called him up to talk about some, some issue, and he was like, he had that definite New York accent and that definite New York raw humor, and I was like, okay, man. And I found out he was Jewish. I said, man, three awesome characteristics. Abraham, number one, in verses one through eight, was justified because it was a gift. He was gifted, and something that he could have never earned. Our rightness is not something because we won a, an argument but our rightness is because it was a gift. Number two, Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. And so because circumcision has no, therefore, Abraham was justified before there was any ever any kind of circumcision that was happening. He was justified. That means that before the law and the Ten Commandments ever happened, Abraham walked with God and he was justified by faith. Isn't that awesome? You know, that's so awesome. And that's why I think... In our Sunday schools, in our teen, when we are with our teens, and, you know, Chris is now working with the teenagers. Thank you, Chris. And Miss Daphne is with the kids. I think that in, in, to, to be truly faithful to the Word of God in our Sunday school, we need to really start off with Abraham before we start off into, and not start with these Ten Commandments that are good but are not the foundation of our faith in Jesus Christ. And number three, Abraham was justified centuries before the law. Justification is not based on the law. So verses 9 through 12 tells us that he was justified before any circumcision. And number three, 
uh, verses 13 through 17. If you're taking notes, Abraham was justified centuries before the law was ever given. So it was given, So his justification was a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. When we talk about the law, we're Gentiles. The law was given to Jews. We're not Jews. I don't know if, it's, if anybody's Jewish here today. Um, my wife has some Jewish blood. Um, we are not Jews. We are spiritual Jews, but we are Gentiles. And so the law was not given to, Je- to the Gentiles. The Gentiles have their own law in Romans chapter 1 and 2, and it's written inside of them, and it's in their conscience. And so we, by nature, know that sometimes we are not meeting up to that. There are different laws. There's the law of fashion. Okay, You can't wear jeans with those shoes and that tank top. You can't do that. Or there's the educational law like, hey, you can't go to seventh grade if you are only in fourth grade. You can't skip unless you're one of the lion's kids. <laughs> All these grades get so smart. Uh, another law, there's the political law. Um, if you're spirit-filled and you're truly a believer in God, walking with God, you're going to be in this particular party, <laughs> voting for this particular person. The law is not in anything. It's not economic. I'm driving and... Um, Michael came up to me this morning and asked me, um, uh, "What were the what was the car? What was the car that all the disciples were driving?" And uh, I said, "No idea." I knew a joke was coming because, and he goes, a "Honda." And I was like, "Why?" Because they were all in one accord. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? Then give more in the offering to set later on. The third, the law is not something that's only mosaic, but it's laws that we live in under our own expectations or what is expected from us. You know better than that. You should not be doing that. That is a law. And today, when we live under the law, we, there are certain circumstances for that. But in verse 1 of chapter 5, let's read this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is not anxious today and is thrown about us. And he's not worried about somebody else in your life. He's not worried about you. And he's not worried about somebody else in your life. And I'm going to talk about anxiety in a minute. God today is not sitting on his throne angry at you because you messed up. This verse tells us we are justified by faith. Is that hard to believe? Well, he might, he's a little irritated, maybe a little annoyed. And I mean, I'm walking with God for 30 years. I should know better. No, God is not angry at us today. He is on his throne, which is not a throne of wrath and death, but it's a throne of what in he, uh, Hebrews chapter 4? It's a whole throne of mercy, a throne of grace that we can run to in the time of need. We have peace with God. That means there's no war between us. There's no strife. There's no anxiety. There's no war going on. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And this is critical to understand because it brings us back to the story that we read right at the beginning of the message. When we understand that the source of all conflict, inner conflict and external conflict with others, is based on our lack of understanding of our peace with God. Somebody may think, well, what is my peace with God? What does Romans 5.1 have to do with my personality conflict with the guy that I work with at work? When we understand we have peace with God, when we, have, when we understand we have peace with God, it changes everything. Verse 2, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So it's through faith. It's not through achievement. It's not through some type of steps that we've got to get in some Christian culture. What we have to be careful of being in the Bible Belt here in the United States is that the Christian church culture does not become part of the law of God or steps to spirituality. Does that make sense? 
that only Christians wear, you know, you have to wear a vest and a button-down shirt like I'm wearing here. To Oh, it's not buttoned-down. Okay, I blew it. That you have to be dressed a certain way to be spiritual because that's achievement and that is not God. Because if man is left, if you and I were left to ourselves, we would not create an easy religion. Why do I say that? Because when we look at the grace message, and when people say this, oh, you go to a grace church, okay, you guys think it's all easy, and it's just, you can go out and sin as much as you want, and God's not going to be angry at you, and, and you can do all this stuff. And, and Because that is not true. It's actually harder. The grace message and the grace economy of grace, or the way God thinks in grace, the grace message, is a very unnatural message. Yes. I'll prove it. Look at all the religions of the world without God, without Jesus Christ. Are, they, are any of them like, just kick back, you're going to go to heaven? Or are any of them like, don't worry, you know, Buddha sent his son who died on a bloody, messy, murderous death, and his blood, he's, 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 um, he's offering salvation freely. You can just trust in him and be saved. There's no religion like that. Man cannot create this kind of religion because man left to himself, unregenerate, is going to create a religion that's very, very difficult with a lot of steps, right? If you leave us alone and in a place where we are just not stirred on being renewed in the spirit of our mind, then we're going to, our, the flesh is going to try to make Christianity extremely complex. Man left to himself is not going to create an easy religion. That's why the grace doctrine is not natural. Otherwise, man would have created it. And then he says this. He says, we have access by faith into this grace. Access, another way to describe this is that we have been introduced. There's a social media platform out there. You know about it probably. It's called LinkedIn. And sometimes, and I don't use it very often, but I've had certain um, propositions come. If you meet this person at this level, they can introduce you to this person in this job opportunity. This is what this verse is saying that we were, not, we were without an introduction into grace until Mr. Faith came. And when Mr. Faith came, Mr. Faith, who is the faith in Jesus Christ, introduces us into a life that we could never qualify for. Sometimes people may look at you and say, how in the world did you ever land in that awesome situation? It's by faith through grace. It was just totally the grace of God. Grace is something that can only be experienced by trusting in faith. And then he says this, rejoice, and by faith we into this grace in which we stand, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, these are some really important words because rejoice is a word that we really only use for Christmas. In Christmas, rejoice. I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody, you know, I don't know if Wes has ever talked to somebody down on this, you know, on the floors of, you know, pipe fitting floors and it's really loud and hot and, you know, how's it going today, dude? It's like, I'm rejoicing. (laughs) I don't use that vocabulary today. What that really means is wow. It just means wow. It just means to exclaim it. Like I think in one translation it says exalt or to, to say, wow, this is amazing. And what he's saying here is that we rejoice in the hope and we say, wow, in the hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? The hope of the glory of God. Sometimes people use that and they have no idea what that means. What is the hope of the glory of God? Let me ask you, who is the hope of the glory of God? Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, right? Verse 27. Jesus is the hope of the glory of God. Amen. That means this, is that hope is a person. Hope is a person. 
Take every doctrine that you know in the Bible and make sure that Christ is in the center of it and make sure that he's the person of that doctrine. Then you'll have true understanding of that doctrine. Because if we have hope without understanding Jesus Christ, it's going to land on us to try to perform that. Does that make sense? For example, Colossians 1 verse 27 says, The mystery that we have, the mysteries of the riches of his grace, is in Christ Jesus, who is the hope of glory. And where does he place, where does Paul in the book of Colossians place Christ? In you. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. What does that mean? I'm bringing this to a practical point here that's going to relate to anxiety. In us means presence. It means awareness. It means nearness. It means that he is closer to us. I like to look at it like this, that Jesus is closer to you than you are to yourself. Think of how close you are to yourself. Nobody knows your thought life. Nobody knows what you feel. Nobody knows things that go on in your life. There's someone closer to you than that. There's someone closer to you than your soul is to you, and that is Jesus Christ. He's in you, and he knows you. And this speaks about presence. Why is this important? Because not only do we have a hope for a a future eternity in heaven, you know, sometimes things can be very difficult. We can be in suffering, and we say, you know, someday this is going to be all over, and I'm going to be in heaven. But until then, I just got to drag my feet and just kind of just get through it, grit my teeth, and just buck up and do it. Well, this next verse here in verse 2 is saying this, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. Not only that in verse 3, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Not only that. What does that mean? Not only are we looking to a heaven that's coming up after we die. Not only that do we have like an awesome God that we are in positional place, we are in Christ in our position, that we are with him and that we are seated above all of those things. Not only that, but now, but now it says here we rejoice in our sufferings. And that rejoice is another word where we can say, we can say, wow, in my sufferings. How do we say, wow, in my sufferings? I don't say, wow, in my sufferings all the time. I'm like getting, I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a very difficult situation. Maybe somebody's taken advantage of me. Maybe I've been ripped off. Maybe I've done bad. Maybe someone's done bad to me. Or maybe someone is not meeting up to my expectations of what I think that they should be. And I'm not saying, and that causes suffering. Suffering always happens in our life when we have an ideal or an expectation that is outside of the grace of God. When we are suffering, it says not only that we have this hope. What is that hope? Okay, let's go back to this point. Are you following me? This hope is a person. Okay, hope, person, is Jesus Christ in me. Think about that presence. And we're going to make this practical in a second. The practical presence of Jesus in me when I'm at work or when I'm at, you know, filling my tank, when I'm filling my car up with gas, when I'm in this situation that's uncomfortable, Christ is in me. He is present. He is present. And what does that mean? It means this, that there is nothing, and get this, okay? This is important. There's nothing too menial and there's nothing too insignificant for the presence of God. Everything is spiritual, right? Amen. Your job is spiritual. <laughs> I've talked to many of you, and you tell me about what's happening in your business and in your job, and, you, and you've told me, but Christ is there, God has me there, and this is what God is doing in this, in this situation. I think some people would look at your circumstance and say, what a menial situation you're in. 
the presence of hope, the presence of Christ in your uncomfortable suffering, whether it be extreme suffering or, or inner suffering, Christ is in you. He is present. And that presence produces hope. And that hope goes on, it goes beyond and goes into, it, it, it produces endurance. And it says that knowing suffering produces endurance. I like the word knowing here. It doesn't say feeling. Because we don't always feel like persevering. We don't always feel like enduring. We don't always feel like saying praise the Lord. We don't always feel like having great character or great hope. Because it's not about feelings. Your emotions and my emotions cannot think. We, our emotions cannot properly assess what's going on in our life. So when we get emotional, we have to take a step back, hit the pause button, right? <laughs> and just say, okay, let's practice the presence of God. Let's, let's, let's meditate on Colossians 1.27. Let's meditate on the fact that Jesus is here in my midst right now. Let's, what, we just begin to think with him. And when we do that, guess what happens? Hope, and get this, okay, because these verses aren't telling us that we have to produce perseverance and endurance, and we have to produce character and character. It's not saying that. What produces all of this? Hope. This hope inside of us. This Jesus inside of us, and we begin to commune with Jesus Christ and his unconditional love, and that he's not angry at us, and that, that before you and I were born, he, he, was, he said, God, I will, I will be the sacrifice lamb before eternity and before time began. This Jesus who says in, during the time of the Last Supper, he says to his disciples, I have with great desire desired to eat this communion with you. Do you know how much God wants to be with you and to commune with you? Sometimes I, I was just catching myself the other day. I think I actually texted somebody this. I said, you know, I got to just go spend some time with God. And I just started spending some time with God. And it's like, God's, it's like, I'm already here. I'm already in you. You don't have to try to spend time with me. I'm already here. And what does that mean that if God is here, if God is me? And that's why everything is so significant in our life. That's why everything means so much going out. And having an ice cream cone with my wife is so significant. We don't eat ice cream, but one time we were so broke. And we eat ice cream. She eats ice cream when I'm not looking. I know she does. She's, not, she's out back there. She's got a special gluten-free, sugar-free, sin-free ice cream. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it is, but I'd love to get some of that. But uh, Organic. It's clear. It's got like no color to it. It's just ice. That's what it is. It's the kind of ice cream that she eats. And I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, I remember we were so broke one time. We were so broke. And it was our, it was our wedding anniversary. I said, honey, this is what we're going to do. We got enough gas in the car to drive downtown and back. So we drove downtown. I bought a bottle of really nice sparkling water. I think it was San Pellegrino. And I brought two glasses. And I, we just poured it. And we just sat at Inner Harbor, there's this federal hill that when you sit on the top of it, you can see the entire beautiful harbor of Baltimore. And we just sat there, and that's what we did for our anniversary. That was beautiful. It was so meaningful. It was one of the best anniversaries I can remember. So we've got to be broke more often, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was significant because Jesus was there, and it wasn't about what we had or what we did not have. Significance. Because when Jesus is present, everything is special. Everything is beautiful, and nothing is menial. That is why... That is why, and I went, this is the practical part, the anxiety part. When we understand that Jesus is present, all of my dark moments 
can be outshined by the presence of Jesus. And let me explain what that means. I grew up in a family, and I don't talk about this a lot, but at that time in my family, there was a real problem with OCD. And OCD is this, um, what does it even stand for? Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. We all know what it means. And there's different kinds of OCD. You know that? There's scrupulous and there's other kinds of OCD. And, and now we live in a culture that is so dominated and structured by technology, many kids are becoming OCD in a lot of ways and they don't even realize it. But OCD comes, this disorder comes from this. And I've been reading a book. Uh, I just I mentioned it to somebody this week. It's called Cosmic Loneliness, written by our founding pastor. And I have a copy of it. PDF, if you'd like it, I'll just mail it to, I'll email it to you. OCD comes from, the process begins when there's a separation from God's unconditional love. That's where it begins. And that leads to guilt. Guilt leads to fear. And it leads to this kind of a statement. I'm guilty, I'm fearful, uh, I'm isolated, and it's all wrong. You ever been in a situation where everything is a disaster and you just step back and you're just like, Oh my gosh, it's all wrong. <laughs> everything's wrong in this house. Everything's upside down or everything's wrong in this relationship or everything is wrong in my business or everything is upside down in my finances. It's a mess and I have no peace because in this situation, I'm not understanding that Jesus is present, right? In John chapter 11, right? I love this. Lazarus dies. Jesus takes his time. He gets word. We know the story. I think we know the story. Jesus gets word that from Martha and Mary that Lazarus is really sick and he's going to die. Jesus starts making his way there and he's on his way stopping and healing people. He gets to, he gets to his, his, but his, his brother Lazarus' home and he's already dead. Everybody's upset. Everybody's saying this is so wrong. And you know what happens? When we begin to practice the presence of the resurrected one, we are no longer living in this isolation because it goes from guilt, fear, it's all wrong, then, then isolation. We get isolated, and then we begin to live in shame, and then we begin to think, I'm wrong. I'm wrong because my shoes are not in order. I'm wrong because this thing is not in its place. I'm wrong because I'm in a situation that I can't control, and it's all out of control. And I'm wrong. I don't know if you understand what I'm talking about, but you can feel that way, and it's a real thing where you begin to condemn yourself because you feel wrong because everything is out of order and you cannot control it. Let me tell you something. When we get there, we start, we, what we try to do, some of us try to do, is put everything in order. And we put everything in order, and everything is in order. Okay, my peace is back. Okay, everything's clean. The house is clean. There's, oh, there's a speck over there. I get that. Okay, now I'm good. I can have peace. You know, I can breathe deeply. That's a false peace. And guess what's going to happen? God's going to send in situations, not to get you, but to show you who is really present, that Jesus is present. And you know, just Jesus, who is he? He is hope. And this hope does not put us to shame. That's why when we live in the, in the person of hope that Jesus is in us, we, are, we, know not, we no longer need to experience guilt 
and fear and that it's all wrong. Because well, you know what? Everything may be wrong in your life. You may be in a transition that you can't seem to get out of. Maybe you're in a series or a cycle of, of sin or addictions. And you're like, I can't get out of this. I don't know what to do. But, and you begin to live in fear. And then you want to you snap into moral control. Does that make sense? I'm going to morally correct my life. 12 steps or these steps or this thing or that. Talk to this counselor. But when we understand that Jesus is in the house, that Jesus is in the room, that Jesus is in my heart and he's not going away, guess what happens? We begin to experience presence. And I'm going to close with this. How do we spell love? Okay, this is the old, I mean, yeah, this is the old, everybody knows the answer to this. There's five languages of love. I think there's six or maybe even seven languages of love. And many books have been written about the five languages of love and, and articles. But what is, the, what is the one way that everybody spells love? One, what is it? Time spent, right? God, I don't know if you really love me if you're not spending time with me or in our relationship with somebody. I don't know if you really love me if, if you're not spending time with me, if you're not with me. I have this, we have this little boy, as you know, we're fostering to adopt and thank you for your prayers. Things are just moving at, at train speed. It's unbelievable. Our, our caseworker said to us Friday, never been in a situation where I've seen this move so quickly ever in all the years of, of what, I've, what I've done. And you know what happens? And if you with little kids know this, that when my wife and I get busy and we're running around the house, guess what happens? Guess who's following us around the house with his hands up? <laughs> like... He wants to be picked up. Actually, not to be picked up. He wants us to come down to his level and play with him. Just do just whatever. Just whatever he's doing. He wants you to be there with him. That is how he is experiencing or she is experiencing love. We experience love when we understand that God has come down and sat down on our floor. And he gets engaged with the details of our life. And there's nothing menial for him. Sometimes we get embarrassed. We're like, oh, God, this is so menial. Or somebody wants to help us with something like, you know, like, like, oh, no, this is so menial. You don't need to do that. This is so gross. I mean, you know, you're too important to help me. With Jesus comes down and nothing is too menial. And he is with us. And he says, I want to be there. So when, because you know what happens? That when we get into our OCD, whatever it is, and we start to try to control everything, guess what? Even when everything is clean and controlled and lovely and clean, Guess what you experience? Crickets in the room, right? Have ever been there? Like there's, there's this, everything's perfect, but I, I feel so lonely. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know what I mean, but you're just like, okay, let's mess this all place, place up again. I went to one country in, in Europe and it was so clean and so orderly. It just wanted me, me wanted, I just wanted to go to a trash can and throw trash everywhere because it was just so clean. You know, when, when we, even if we try to clean it all up and try to, to address the OCD, the, the, the out of order, guess what happens? We are still lonely because we are still not practicing the presence of Christ. And this is what it says here in verse 10. Uh, verse 9 says, we have been justified by his blood. Much more we should be saved from him from the wrath of God. God's not angry at you. Verse 10, for if we were enemies, we were reconciled by God by the death of his son, the cross much more, and I miss this part where the, the Holy Spirit pours into, the lo- pours into us the love of Christ. And what that means is that the word pour is very important because when you pour something into the ground, where is the water going to go first? It's, the, it's this law, and I don't remember who said it, but 
the nature abhors the void. And what happens is, is that when you pour water into a plant, it's going to go to the bottom and it's going to seek the, it's going to seek the deepest, lowest crevice and fill that first before it starts to fill everything else. Grace, when the Holy Spirit is poured into our life, which happened once, he fills everything. And that is the presence. And that means time spent. It means that he is with us, that he is loving us. And we don't need to pray this prayer anymore. God, show me your love. Where are you? Show me your love. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's a cross 2,000 years ago. In this, I think one, one translation to King James says, in this that he demonstrated his love towards us, that Christ died. And if we were enemies in verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his, of his son much more. Now that we are reconciled, we should be saved by his life. We were reconciled. Think about that. Bygones are bygones. You ever send a text to somebody, are we good? And you get a text back, we're good. Guilty disciples, they forsook him at the cross. They're in the upper room. Jesus appears. What's his first words? You guys disappointed me. Where were you where I needed you? No. He said, peace to you. We're good. We are good. We're good. This heals us. There's no offense. And whenever we turn our face to God, we'll get a smile. Sometimes my kid will be playing around, and he'll stop and he'll look at me. I'll just look like, are we good? I don't know if your kid does this. Look at him, are we good? It's like, and I'll smile. I can just see that he, and I'll say, you know what? We're good, and we get a smile. That's what James says, that there's no shadow of turning. He never changes. There's no shadow. But the anxious mind's going to ask, yes, but how long am I going to be saved? I am reconciled, I'm reconciled by the cross, and I'm saved by his life, but how long will I be saved? And the answer to that is, you're going to lose your salvation the moment that Jesus stops living. <laughs> and when is he going to let stop living? He's going to continue living forever. And this beautiful verse in Hebrews 7, verse 25, it says that he is able to save to the uttermost. And I'm closing with this. Those who draw near to God through him, since he's always lives to make intercession for them. God is going to save you and I to the uttermost. Are you worried about unfinished things in your life that you think that are unfinished? Not patient enough? Not this. I got to be a better dad. I got to be a better worker. I got to be this or that. I, I, I'm not a great mom. I had a mom tell me one time in Ukraine, she goes, I'm, no, I'm not a disciple anymore. I said, Why not? Because, well, I got married and I have kids and I can't do all that stuff out there anymore. I said, What are you talking about? Discipleship is not about you doing something. He is able to save to the uttermost. He is going to take you and He's going to lead you to a finished process in your life. He's going to be faithful to complete what he's done, what he's begun in your life. And he's always going to live to make intercession for us. I love that fact that the resurrection talks about his life, that he's alive today, that as long as he's alive, he's going to intercede for us. And so let me just recap this four things. We are no longer wrong by the cross. We are right because of resurrection. Number two, we have peace with God, inner peace and external peace and suffering. Number three, we have permanent presence of the Spirit and the person of hope of Christ in us. And number four, we are saved to the uttermost by his resurrection life of intercession. Let's pray.